fondest memory of my youth. I think uh, my grandfather was, uh, um, impressed me quite a bit. He was, uh, to me at the time, uh, a big man, tall, strong, uh, hardworking, uh, truthful. I always thought he was truthful and honest about things. Uh, I, I just liked the, his, the way he carried himself. He just seemed bigger than life. And uh, so whenever I visited my, my grandparents and my grandfather was there, it was always great to see him. And you could see that he, uh, he was happy to see us and happy to see me. And uh, I was, since I was the oldest in the family, you know, I always had a chance to go up and talk to him. And uh, I always enjoyed his stories of him growing up in Mexico and uh, how uh, they came from Mexico to the United States and then wound up in Wisconsin. Uh, so it, I was really in, uh, impressed with my grandfather quite a bit. Uh, just uh, the way he looked, the way he carried himself, uh, just everything about him. I, it's, it's hard to describe. He was like a like a John Wayne to me. He always seemed so confident, you know. And you're like, man, you know, I wish I could be like that when I when I grow up. I want to be just like my grandfather. He was he was so cool, you know. Uh, that's uh, I think that one of the things that I think about now. When I think about my youth, what do I, what do I think of? I think of friendships. You know, being with friends, I think was was real important to me to have friends and uh, outside my house and uh, had a lot of them. So being with my friends, having fun with my friends, having uh, do, um, adventures with my friends, uh, I think that was one of the things that I remember about my youth is is the friendships that I made and uh, I still have some of those friendships. Uh, even to this day, you know, we still get together. We're, most of us are in our mid or middle 60s or some early 70s, uh, these guys. And uh, so we still get together. We still talk about those, those times when we were kids and the adventures we had and uh, the crazy stuff we used to do. And that's what I remember about uh, being young and uh, here's my friends. Yeah, my grandfather uh, would tell us his stories about Mexico and his, his growing up as, as a young boy, and uh, I thought they were really cool stories. And one of the stories he would tell about when he was a very young boy, meeting uh, one of the revolutionaries down there in Mexico at the time, uh, Pancho Villa, and uh, actually meeting with him, uh, never talked to him, but saw him riding his horse, going through town with his um, band of men, you know, and, uh, and uh, he snuck out and ran out to the street uh, to see this guy, and he said that, uh, that's one of the things that uh, he was impressed by is, you know, uh, this man, this huge man with a mustache riding on his horse and having all these, you know, 30 or 40 men riding behind him. And he thought that was the coolest thing, you know, and they had these guns on their holsters and rifles, you know, and uh, some of the people in the streets that had gone out there were cheering and hollering. And uh, I think that was uh, one of the coolest stories I've had heard. And uh, and I remember watching movies on TV about Pancho Villa, and I'm like, hey, my grandfather saw that guy. That's pretty cool. So that's uh, one of the stories. And another story I think that my grandfather used to tell is uh, trying to make it to the United States. Uh, they would cross the border and work on uh, in the United States, and then at, in, at night, they would all go back to Mexico in their homes. And uh, eventually, um, my grandfather and grandmother and uh, uh, the kids, uh, their children, my dad and my aunts, uh, 
they all came to the United States legally, uh, got papers, and uh, I, I, see, I saw the papers just the other day, uh, or not the other day, about a year ago, going through some papers uh, with my uh, aunts, uh, them crossing the border and, and the papers they used to get over here. And I think there was a, uh, they had to go to an office of some kind and, and talk to some people uh, to make sure the paperwork was okay and that everything was signed and uh, they could cross and enter legally and, and, and uh, they, then be, they became citizens, you know, which is like, wow. And then they settled in a small town in Texas uh, Mirando City, Texas, and uh, that's where I grew up uh, my uh, childhood. Uh, I think the first five years of my childhood was in Mirando City. And uh, so they moved there, he, he built a home, um, he, had a, he had a small business, a store, and a restaurant. That's what it was, I remember that, two, two businesses. Uh, the, the store's gone, but the restaurant's still there, and it, it's still being run. And uh, when I get down to a Texas in Mirando City, uh, and go visit that, uh, that little restaurant. It's a small little restaurant, but it's, it's a real popular restaurant because, well, partly I think it's because the only restaurant within 100 miles of anything, you know. So a lot of people, truckers, you know, people stop by and, and they know her. Well, she's, she just passed now, but uh, my aunt that, that ran that. And, uh, but the, the kids took over the restaurant and it's still going, it's still thriving. Uh, so and it's one of the one of the first restaurants in that little town. And, and in fact, they have a plaque on a stone that uh, recognizes that restaurant and and the band of family. And it's kind of cool to see that. It's like wow, they came in you know eighteen something and uh, in the eighteen hundreds and uh, settled into Texas and uh, started the restaurant and it's continued on. And they have a, a monument, a little plaque. Uh, just to recognize that, and that is kind of cool. Faith was, in my younger uh, life, was quite important. I, you know, talking about my grandparents coming from Mexico, very strict Catholics. Uh, you know, if they were had, in fact, my grandmother had a painting of, uh, of Jesus Christ and, and uh, the Blessed Mother, and she had a few statues of some saints in her. Uh, and definitely had a, a small statue of Our Lady of Guadalupe, which was a big thing down in Mexico. And so it's a, it's a big thing here now. And uh, so she had like a little altar and candles and whole works. And then, you know, you'd pray. And on Sundays, you know, if you couldn't go to church, you would pray in front of the altar that she had in her home. Uh, and pray that she would pray there in the morning when she got up, and noon, and in the evening before she went to bed, she had a little prayer. She actually would kneel, you know, have a little cushion that you would kneel on and, and pray in front of it, you know. And I remember looking at that and I'm like, wow, it was quite impress impressive. And uh, so it, religion, you know, with my grandmother and my parents, not so much, but like I said, my, I was really impressed with my, with my grandfather and uh, he was always a very religious man. So I followed in their footsteps and uh, became real religious myself. Uh, went to a Catholic grade school, uh, you know, and that was, we went to Mass every day, every day. Uh, and every uh, holy day, and then there was a Saturday uh, that you went to, to Mass, and, and Sunday. So, I mean, it was like six, seven days a week you were going to Mass. And you're, you know, you're, still, you're going to catechism uh, classes, you know, the catechism and uh, uh, the Bible studies. 
So we were, I was anyway, quite into it uh, with faith. So it was quite important in my younger days uh, in, in grade school and in high school. I worked for Milwaukee County Fire Department. Uh, I started working there in 1983 uh, at the Mitchell International Airport as an airport firefighter. And uh, what I liked about working there was working with the other firefighters. You know, I was fortunate enough to land uh, on uh, working there uh, with these guys that were just great to work with. So it, the friendships that we had there uh, at the fire department, and then we used to get together on our days off, uh, you know, go bowling, uh, go to movies together. Uh, we have Christmas parties at each other's house. It was a real tight group. And so I really enjoyed it. And uh, also part of being a firefighter at, at the airport, you get a chance to meet a lot of people coming in and out of the airport. And uh, so that was a, a plus for me. Um, the, the number one thing obviously is working with these guys that were great to work with. Uh, and then uh, you get a chance to meet other people passing through the airport uh, as you're making your rounds at the airport. One of the duties of being an airport firefighter was going through the, all the airport buildings, uh, the concourses, and checking uh, the fire extinguishers and, and uh, sprinkler systems, and then just doing some PR, walking around and, and talking to people and see if they need anything and, uh, and stuff like that. So you got a chance to meet a lot of cool people there. Uh, a lot of interesting things would happen at the airport that most people don't see because uh, you get a, a about a million people a, a year go through uh, Mitchell Airport. So you get a chance to see a lot of people from all over the country and all over the world. So it was really interesting, uh, you know, when we got a chance to meet them. Sometimes you meet these people because they were injured or not feeling well, and they called us to come in and help them out. And uh, so you got a chance to see them more on a personal level sometimes, rather than just, you know, meeting them and yes. saying hello and shaking hands. You know, you're actually uh, talking to them, finding out what's wrong and uh, asking them personal questions and uh, trying to calm them down and uh, talking with them. And so it was, I, I enjoyed that. And the fact that I was doing something positive, something good, uh, something that was helping people, I, I really, really enjoyed that quite a bit. Midwest Airlines, Midwest Express it was called back then. I was just starting out, 1985. And uh, I'd been working there two years at the, uh, at the airport and Midwest Express 105, uh, it was in the morning around 8.45, uh, took off and uh, uh, I think there was 30 passengers on board. And as they took off, one of the engines blew. The pilot lost control of the aircraft and, and crashed just south of the field. It augured in, it was a high impact crash. It was over within you know, within a minute or so. Uh, but we got the call, uh, we were, because we are airport firefighters, and uh, that's what our du main duty is, is to take care of uh, in, uh, fighting aircraft fires. We got called out and went down to the south end. It was just south of college. There was a field there, and, and uh, it landed in the field, just to the edge of some trees. And when we got there, there was a small fires, you know, not much. It, uh, most of the fuel had burnt off of the, when the impact of the crash. Uh, so there was just small spot fires. And uh, we were looking for survivors, uh, but there was none. It was just too high of an impact crash. Uh, there was uh, no survivors. So there was uh, then uh, body recovery. 
and remains, identification of remains. So seeing that, uh, in, uh, which was real interesting to me because it, uh, it took me back to Vietnam, you know, because I was in Vietnam in 1970. The smell, the smoke, the fires, it's, it was like a battlefield experience. So uh, I was like, wow, this is just like being in, uh, in Vietnam and uh, right after a battle where, you know, you see fires and bodies and uh, a lot of carnage. And uh, so, but that was, I think, uh, one of the things that will always be in my, my memory is, you know, responding to that and, you know, you're always hoping for the best and maybe somebody survived, but it was just, uh, wasn't meant to be. You know, I remember back in, uh, senior year in high school, I went to Boyce Tech High School here in Milwaukee. And uh, all the friends we had, you know, some guys were going into the Air Force, some guys were going into the Navy, uh, some guys were going to the Marine Corps, you know, and uh, I was talking to some of the guys and we were all sitting around, I remember, and, uh, you know, what are you gonna do? I said, well, I'm gonna go to work. You know, at the time, and in the 60s, there was jobs everywhere. I mean, you could get out of high school and go right into a job, and a well-paying job. So I was thinking about, I'll go to work. He said, you know, well, you know, the other guys are going into the service, you know, they, they said it's kind of, a, it'd be kind of cool. And then uh, I said, well, there's Vietnam, you know, you might be sent to Vietnam, so why don't you, you know, go with the Air Force, you know, they don't send anybody in the Air Force in Vietnam, you know, unless they want to go. I said, no, well, maybe you're right, maybe Air Force, you know, or, or what about Navy? Yeah, Navy, you know, they got cool uniforms. You know, they're white, bell-bottoms at the time, you know, that was kind of cool. And uh, yeah, maybe, you know, and then got out of high school and just had a part-time job for a while and still thinking about, okay, Air Force, Navy, you know. Um, some of my, my, my buddies, the crazier ones, went into the Marine Corps. And uh, he said, you know, I remember talking to one of them and they said, uh, you know, well, they got cool uniforms, you know. The, Navy, the Marines have some really cool uniforms. I'm like, yeah, you're right, but... You know, they're being sent to Vietnam there. And he says, well, you know, they trained us well. I said, well, you're right. They probably do train you well. I think a couple of days later, I got a letter. It says, oh, they made up my mind for me. They were going to put me in the Army. And I said, oh, man, that's how I wound up in the Army. I was drafted. Uh, it took too long to make a choice about uh, what I was going to go into. But fate, you know, I'm talking about fate. I had taken a lot of first aid courses in grade school and I took a lot of first aid courses in high school. And it was, back then it was just to kill time and get credit. And so, so I had a lot of first aid training. So now I'm taking these tests. So they're going like, hey, this guy could be a medic. He knows about bandages, he knows about infections, and he knows about temperature, and he knows. So they put me in as a, as a medic. They said, well, you're gonna be a medic. You, know, you scored this, uh, your, your tests here, and uh, so we're going to make you a medic, just like that. I'm, okay. I mean, I, like I had a choice. I was sent down to Fort Sam Houston uh, in San Antonio for uh, 13 weeks. Uh, what was, was uh, like a vacation compared to boot camp, because boot camp is it's just, you know, it's physical and it's uh, emotional. You know, you don't get much sleep, and you're always running, and you're always exercising, and you're always getting yelled at. So when you go to uh, training down like I was going to in uh, Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, it was like a vacation. It was warm. It was in the 70s and 80s. At Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where I did boot camp, it was in January and February. 
and it was, it doesn't get as cold as it does in Wisconsin, but it was cold. It was in the 20s and 30s, and you're crawling around on the ground, getting all wet, and it's cold, and you're like, oh, man. So here I am in San Antonio. The school uh, was, uh, it was a tough school. I mean, they really trained you well. Right after I did my uh, medical training at Fort Sam Houston, they were asking for volunteers to go to uh, jump school, Fort Benning, Georgia, to be a paratrooper. My uncle uh, fought in World War II uh, in Europe, and he talked about the uh, 101st and Screaming Eagles. Uh, he wasn't in with the 101st, I think. I can't remember what unit he was in. Uh, might have been the Big Red One. But uh, he, he talked about the 101st, the Screaming Eagle patch, uh, paratroopers coming out of airplanes, and you know he, he romanticized it, and I think, oh, that's kind of cool. Wouldn't mind doing that. So we did it. You know, we did the training. I mean, the testing, and uh, he says, "Okay, you guys passed. Yeah, you still want to be uh, uh, paratroopers? You know, sign up." And you know, there was a half a dozen of us, and we all signed up. And there was uh, air, there was Air Force people there. Uh, they were going to be pilots. They were learning. Uh, obviously, they need to learn how to jump, how to use a parachute, you know, just in case they had to bail out of their aircraft. So we trained with the Air Force. They had some Navy SEALs that were training. Uh, some Rangers, Ranger School, they had to go through that training also. So we were training alongside a lot of elite uh, soldiers. The country of Vietnam was beautiful, beautiful. I mean, it's like paradise there. The jungle, foliage, green, air, air was wonderful to breathe, the, the, the pools, the emerald pools of water, the waterfalls, the animals, the, the, the flowers. I mean, it was, you, when there was a quiet time and you're walking through the jungle and you stop for a break, and then you just sit there and there's no noise, just, you know, the environment. It is beautiful. I mean, it is just gorgeous, it's breathtaking. This is paradise, you know, and then, too bad, you know, that we're fighting here. I mean, this is just wonderful. You know, when you're in combat and then sometimes you get a break and for a couple of days they send you back to, uh, to, uh, to the rear, uh, to a big camp, Camp Evans or Camp Eagle. Right then there's uh, the city of Way, which is, and there's a, it's a big city. It was just like a regular city. You Sometimes we went into the city for, to uh, pick up some supplies and uh, we went into the city and, just driving in the Jeep and looking around and there's a University of Ways there and the college students going. There's a war going on, but the college is still going. People are still shopping, people are doing their business and it's like, you know, I was thinking, well, it's too bad because there's people are friendly, it's a beautiful country and what a terrible place to have a war. To have a war can you have a war, I guess. When I was in Vietnam, I was assigned with, to the 101st Airport and I think one of the things that, that I, they got me into the 101st Screaming Eagles was because I had gone to Fort Benning, Georgia. I jumped school, so let's send him to the 101st. You know, they, uh, there, was a, there was a lot of fighting going on then, and uh, they were losing a lot of guys. And one of the guys that they, they usually uh, lose is the medic, because he's the one that goes out there and he's not armed. And you, usually you're armed, but when somebody gets wounded, you put your rifle down and you have to take care of the guy so you're not armed. So they needed a medic up in the i Corps area where the 101st was stationed. Up that, that's up by the, uh, the northern part of South Vietnam at the time uh, when they were divided by the DMZ, north and south. 
so that's where I was sent. And, uh, and at the time, uh, I got there in December of 69. Uh, there, was, uh, there was a lot of action going on. Uh, and I remember in March of 70, we were giving orders, not just, uh, just about the whole airborne division in, in that area was assigned to uh, clear out an area called uh, in the Ashaw Valley. And what happens during the, the monsoon season, which runs from, uh, you know, like December all the way through March, the Vietnamese or the North Vietnamese soldiers and the Viet Cong resupply and, and all the uh, gather in the Ashaw Valley uh, to go down south. And what happens every year is they send in U.S. troops and uh, South Vietnamese soldiers up into that Aishal Valley to clear it all out. And this happened every year, you know. They'd come back, we'd go in, clear it out, and it would be fine for a while, and then they'd come back again, and then we'd go in, clear it out. And this is what was happening there in, in the March of 1970, it started. So we were going into the Aishal Valley. And there was a lot of North Vietnamese divisions in there, a lot of Viet Cong. So we, uh, as usual, we a um, uh, lot of resistance. You know, firefights every day, contact every day. Uh, somebody was, you know, somebody was getting killed, uh, wounded. Uh, so it was. There was just so much going on, and there was a lot of action going on, and we were involved in it. My squad was involved in it, my platoon. So there was, it was a lot of action, uh, and. Being there in uh, in April twenty April twenty third nineteen seventy, we were in the Ashaw Valley. Going, we were in, on patrol, uh, and we were going out. I was with a recon unit, and we'd go out in uh, seven man teams, and I was the medic in that team, and we'd go out and uh, try not to make contact. What we what our job was to go in there, uh, determine uh, the size of the enemy. Uh, you know what kind of uh, armaments they had, you know, what kind of weapons they were using, uh, where were they at, their location, and report that back. But when you're in an area like that, uh, in, in as quiet as we were in a seven-man team, you get ambushed. You know, there's just, just no, no way of getting around it. And that's what happened. We were, it was April 23rd, the morning of, and uh, we were on patrol, and we were going through an area, and uh, we were ambushed. Uh, first guy got uh, uh, our point man was shot, and he went down. And, and we and it, it happened in an open area, and uh, you know, and, and we we know each other very well. I mean, it's it's our you know we're brothers. We're like family. So if somebody gets hurt or something, right away we rush to help. And uh, I was a medic, and. Uh, he was wounded, he, uh, he couldn't get up, he was laying there, he got sh he shot twice through the stomach, and he was laying there in an open area, and uh, he needed to get out of there. There was a lot of shooting going on from both sides. They were shooting at us, we were shooting at them, you know, and then crawled out there and grabbed him, uh, pulled him over behind a tree to take care of him, and, uh, you know, at the time, I, you know, I, he's laying on the ground, I'm kneeling over him, trying to stop the blood, I get the bandages, trauma dressings, and all out. You know, I mean, I, I can feel uh, the bullets whizzing by, and they're so close. And you know, and, and from both sides, you know, I'm, you know, I could feel the bullets on one side coming, 
And then I, on the other side, I can feel the bullets coming, you know, my way also. And I'm going, oh, man, this is a bad area, but I can't move them right now. So I, I took care of them. And once I, I stopped the bleeding and put the bandage on, I could then drag them even to a safer spot, not only for him, but for me. Because in a firefight like that, it, it's a lot of chaos sometimes. And there, so everybody's shooting, you know. I mean, thousands of rounds are going off. And so you get hit by friendly fire very easily. Uh, so that's, uh, and fortunately, uh, it, nothing hit me. I wasn't wounded at all. And I, I pulled the guy back and uh, about 30, 40 feet and, uh, to a safer area. And, and I remember the guys yelling at me and they're like, what are you doing, Doc? You know, you're, you were out there right in the open like that. And, you know, we're shooting, you know, and they're shooting, you know, and you're lucky we didn't kill you. And I said, yeah, I said, thanks. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I had to do it, you know. I, this guy was a good friend of mine. And uh, just as a medic, you had to go up. You did it. That was your job. And uh, so I was uh, put in for the, the Silver Star for that day, and uh, that was April 23rd. And on May 6th is when Firebase Henderson happened, you know. So it wasn't that far off again. Like I said, there was a, it was a bad area. It was Aofair, I mean, uh, the Aishaw Valley. And uh, now we were in uh, Fort uh, Firebase Henderson, which was even further north of uh, the Aishaw Valley. That was even closer to the uh, demilitarized zone. That's an even more dangerous area, if you can, if you can say that. But uh, uh, May 6th, uh, the morning of, uh, we were attacked and uh, we were overrun by a division of uh, North Vietnamese soldiers and uh, lost a lot of my platoon that day. And, uh, uh, you know, Again, as a medic, my job is to go around and try to uh, treat the wounded, and, and that's what I did. And, and I was uh, put in for the Bronze Star with a V device for Valor. So, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I think about it now, and I'm gonna, you know, very fortunate, you know. I, and, you know uh, and when I received the Silver Star you know, for those actions, and I, I think back, and I'm gonna, I remember the bullets whizzing by, and I'm gonna, you know, I could have been killed that. At that morning, and then, but I wasn't in. Same thing with the May 6th for uh, Firebase Centers. I mean, all the medics were killed except me, and uh, and most of my platoon. It was only like uh, uh, on that hill that morning, uh, there was only three of us left. So uh, again, it was fortunate, and uh, you know, again they, you know, they said, "Well, you deserve a bronze star for valor," and I'm like, "Please," I said, "I was just." Again, I feel like I was just doing what you trained me to do at Fort Sam Houston. And uh, what I've been doing all this time when I've been here in Vietnam is to take care of the guys. And that's my job. You know, when, when, I, when I think about that time, uh, either May, April 23rd or May 6th, you know, one of the things that, that sticks in my I remember how scared I was. I mean, I, was, I had never been so scared in my entire life. Since then, I mean, you think you're going to lose your life any second, and it's not going to be a good way to die. So you're just scared out of your mind, and but you still do things that you need to do, and it's like wow. And I think back on that, I'm like, I don't know how I did that uh, to be able to do those things as scared as I was. And and one of the things too is I remember. You know, because you know, because I, I was awarded the the medals, but there was other people there that I you know uh, 
The people who ask me, well, what did you see, uh, you know, from a personal, uh, you know, what I felt and what I was doing. But I saw other people uh, uh, perform acts of courage uh, that were just unbelievable, you know, that uh, people would put themselves in, in, in a line of fire to, to save a buddy and then they get killed. So nobody hears their story or nobody saw it happen but me. And uh, so it, it's one of those things that, you know, you th there was a lot of people up there that uh, uh, performed acts of tremendous courage and sacrifice and, uh, you know, nobody knows about them. And, uh, and you know, I seen them, uh, I, I witnessed it, uh, but they were killed you know, in performing their duties and what they were doing. And I wasn't, so I was, you know, I was here to, to talk about it, and they weren't, you know, to say, you know, Tommy Turan, you know, was uh, walking toward the enemy shooting, and uh, they're trying to stop the, uh, the influx of uh, North Vietnamese soldiers coming up, and, uh, and rather than hiding behind a bunker or hiding behind sandbags, he stood up and started walking toward the enemy and, you know, shooting at him, and uh, he got shot twice. and. Uh, he went down, got up, shot some more, he got shot again, he went down and he got up again. And, you know, uh, then uh, there was a big explosion and I, and I never saw uh, Tommy after that. In fact, after that, he went, nobody could find his body. And he was missing in action for, till 2004, from 1970. So things like that I see, you know, where, hey, there was other people there beside me and they were doing some incredible things that, they were killed and, you know, nobody can, you know, uh, my friend Ed Vesser, you know, he was horribly wounded, but, you know, he kept uh, shooting while he, as long as he could, you know, until he didn't have any strength left and then, you know, then I started taking care of him, but, and Ken Schutte was there also, he had, he had his left eye blown out, he continued shooting, uh, and, uh, so it's those things that, hey, you know, there was other, there was other people there that were uh, performing acts of tremendous courage, you know, and, uh, but nobody knows their story. So. But then I think, so what's a hero supposed to feel like? Or, you know, does, does he know he's a hero? It, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable, I'm embarrassed, and I'm going like, you know, thinking to myself, you know, I was just doing my job. You know, this is what I was trained to do, this is what I did, and I was lucky enough to survive it. But it, it is, it's embarrassing to me, and it's, you know, and I feel uncomfortable, you know, and that goes, I have gone, I've been to, uh, you know, conventions and conferences and stuff, and, and, and yeah, I'm sitting there, and it's, oh, yeah, George Amanda is out there getting, yeah, he's a hero from Vietnam, and, you know, stand up, and, you know, it's like, leave me alone, you know, but you're like, okay, you're polite, you get up, and you wave, and people clap, and come and shake your hand, and, you know, just really uncomfortable, like, I'm not a hero, my goodness. You know, uh, the contributions of uh, Mexicans uh, in, in the military from the, from the beginning of this country till now and all the conflicts and it's been, you know, overlooked. And, and I think it's because, uh, you know, Mexicans uh, kind of, you know, we blend in and uh, we go into the background and we don't like to be, you know, uh, up front and, and say, hey, here I am and, you know, this is what we did and this is what... It, what I did, uh, so we, we just kind of, you know, uh, don't like that attention, and I, I'm not sure exactly why, but it's, uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, my, even going back to my grandfather, he was a very quiet, quiet man, strong, 
He could do just about anything, but you could, he wouldn't tell you that. He, he would never brag. He was always very humble. And, uh, and I, I think, too, with all my uncles and aunts and everybody that I've ever known, and, you know, they're just humble. You know, you go, you do your job, and that's it. You just, you know, you don't brag about yourself. And I think, uh, and that's one, one of the reasons, I think, too, that, uh, you know, we've been overlooked. Uh, throughout history, especially in the conflicts and, and the wars we've fought and died for, uh, we rarely are mentioned. Uh, maybe once in a great while, if, if there's a Medal of Honor recipient that has to be happened to be Hispanic, well then he gets the attention. But I'm sure he, he doesn't want, he doesn't want it. <laughs> but yeah, we just kind of you know flow with uh, you know with everybody else and and not bring attention to ourselves. Up until recently, where you know people are start coming up, uh, the, the, the what I can say, the new generation is coming out and says, "Hey, you know what? You know we're getting all this flack about you know us being in this country and the illegals and the immigrants and uh, you're getting a bad rap." And you know we have to speak up for ourselves and say, "Hey, you know we've been here since the beginning and we fought it in a lot and most of the wars here and uh, we've been up front and." Uh, We've shed blood for this country. We some of us died for this country, and some are, you know, uh, heroes. If you want to use that word, uh, where they have received the Medal of Honor or, or other uh, um, medals of uh, uh, valor. So uh, you have to speak up and say, "Hey, these are accomplishments. We should let people know that we're just not here." As some people would think, illegal and living off the land and not making any contribution to this country when we actually have been making a tremendous contributions to this country and fighting for this country and dying for it. I think with, uh, with the Latino community, I, I know with, with my family and the friends that I had around me, uh, they were very understanding. They, didn't, they welcomed me back, which was a, a wonderful thing to come home and to be hugged and to be thanked for my service, uh, for my family and my friends in the neighborhood, you know, uh, that was, a, uh, that what was happening in, in my community anyway. Uh, the, the Latinos that were coming back were, were being welcomed and uh, thanked for their service. And uh, I remember people paid my bill for at a restaurant or something or a drink at a bar and say, hey, thank you for your service. And, you know, uh, if you ever want to talk about it, uh, let me know, but they would, I remember they would never ask me, you know, uh, at least in, in my community about, you know, what, how was, how bad was it, or how did you kill anyone like that. It was all, it was mostly uh, very supportive and uh, very welcoming, especially with my family. And I was being close with my family. They, they never asked me anything about Vietnam. They just, they needed the. The thing about the Vietnam in the 60s and 70s, it, it was on TV every night. So they knew uh, how bad it was. And, uh, you know, they, they knew I was there. And they, when I got home, they really welcomed me home. And I remember my, home, my mom making me home-cooked meals. And, you know, and it was just wonderful to be home. You know, what I've seen in the Latino community, you know, um, recently is uh, more and more people speaking up about, and I've said this before, about the contributions of Latinos throughout the country and you know here in Milwaukee. 
and uh, we should speak uh, out more about our contributions and uh, we've what we've done, and that uh, you know we we're here to you know, uh, to help this country and, and you know and help each other. And uh, I, I see that more and more. I, I th I'm seeing things that I had never thought would happen. You know, you got Spanish radio, you got Spanish. Uh, television, uh, you, you know, I mean, you can watch uh, Spanish programs, you know, uh, on TV now, a lot of them. Uh, there's uh, advertising and in Spanish, there's organizations out there that are helping the community, the uh, Latino community. Uh, there's uh, people out there, politicians, we have uh, representatives, uh, Latino representatives, uh, you know, the attorneys, uh, there's plenty of attorneys that are Latinos. I mean, I've seen a lot of progress recently that I, I think is, is incredible, it's positive, uh, and, and I think that's the way it's going to go in the future, is uh, we're going to be more and more uh, outspoken about our contributions and, uh, you know, uh, so we're here and we're here to stay, you know, I mean, and we're going to try to make the best of it, not for just us, or Latinos, but for everybody, you know. I mean, that's what... Uh, I mean, that's what the world should be like, and everybody's helping everybody to, to move forward. I think when people see uh, someone who's different, who doesn't speak the language, who dresses differently, uh, you know, who eats a different kind of food, uh, who thinks differently, you know, I don't know if it's a, a, a normal reaction to go, okay, you get defensive. Uh, so, and that's the way I see it. I think people are getting real defensive, like, okay, you know, I don't, they don't speak the, the same language I do, and uh, and people get defensive and they get fearful, and uh, and you know, and I remember some of that, uh, you know, and growing up, uh, in when I first got here in Wisconsin and, and not being able to speak the language, you know, uh, you're obviously you're, you're different, you are different, and people see you that way until you, you know, you know, supposedly assimilate. You know, then you're more accepted, and, uh, and but not totally. I mean, it's never, I don't think it's, it'll ever be totally. But uh, I, I can sympathize or empathize with the Hmong and, and other immigrants because, yeah, I mean, I've, I've gone through that same thing. The poor Hmong, you know, I mean, they fought for for in Vietnam, you know, with us, and uh, you know, and we just left them hanging there, and it's like. And you know now they have a Hmong community, and they have a uh, uh, they have a school, and you know I, I, I've been to their school, and I've been to some of their events that the Hmong have, and, and and you just have to keep moving forward. We need to keep our eyes and hearts open to people and say, hey, you know we've been there, we've all been there, we're all immigrants.